Well, welcome back. We're continuing going through the unfolding word, uh, just looking at the story. We really recognized a theme going throughout Scripture, uh, tracing the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, and noting how all of Scripture is really telling this one story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We want to see how the different uh, smaller stories fit in to the bigger picture and wanted to trace that. Today, we're kind of considering Joshua and Judges in particular, those two books. Obviously, in 40 minutes, we're going to have to do a high-level overview of it, but want to uh, take a peek at that. And then we talked about from the beginning that God wanted a people and a place for him to be with his people and to be in uh, union and communion with them. The garden uh, was that place in the beginning. Uh, Adam and Eve, because of their sin, got expelled from the garden. And then we saw that uh, God had made a promise to Abram that there would be both a people and a place uh, where he would dwell and be with his people. And then, you know, we see that fulfilled uh, in some sense in Israel, and then we'll recognize as we go throughout that God meant something beyond that as well, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not just any people in place, but in particular today, we're going to note more, it's a holy people and a holy place. Because in order to be in the presence of God, uh, you must be holy and everything around him uh, must be holy as well. And then we recognized as we went through so far in Genesis and Exodus that it's kind of telling us who is Yahweh, who is the Lord, what is his name, what is he like? And we recognized last week that the people of Israel and the people of Egypt found out what he is like when he manifested his power over over all of the Egyptian gods and the 10 plagues and when God released his people from their deliverance, uh, from their deliverance, when he delivered them uh, from their oppressors. We find out more as we go on throughout scripture who Yahweh is and who this, um, the Savior is. And we recognize that he's a divine warrior, that he's the one who conquers for his people. And we saw that in particular at the Exodus event And then it's interesting, as Pastor noted in the sermon today, that Jesus comes as the divine warrior. He is the one who is the seed of the woman, who conquers the seed of the serpent. And that story today is just such a clear picture of it. The gospel account that we have in Mark, where he's the one who commands, uh, has all authority over the demons as well. And so all of this, in some sense, is pointing forward to Jesus. But there's a real pattern that goes on. Judges and uh, Joshua and Judges are not the most fun or encouraging read. <laughs> um, it does have points in them where it is, but you notice this cycle over and over. And we find throughout, and even uh, in Exodus, this there that there's a real pattern of grumbling and complaining over and over. We even read in Exodus, you know, that the people had wished or said to the Lord that, hey, it was better for us back in Egypt. Right? In Egypt, they were slaves, and they had cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And then when the Lord delivered them, and they're out, and they're having uh, in the wilderness, they said, you know what, it is actually better back there. And they grumbled and complained against the Lord. And we find this cycle over and over throughout Scripture. And honestly, we find it over and over in our hearts as well. And that's kind of where we left, we left off. Um, in some sense, we talked about remembering and forgetfulness, that remembering is something that uh, God calls us to do. And remembering isn't just an intellectual fact. Like I remember that something happened, but a participation in something. Uh, So we remember the Lord's day and we keep it holy. We take, eat, remember, and believe that this body is broken for us and this blood is shed for us 
So this idea of remembering, that one of the purposes to record all of these stories is to remind us of who God is and who we are and who he is for us and with us and to show himself mighty and powerful and also to remind us and show us of our great need because we often get very forgetful and that's when we start to grumble and complain because we think, hey, what you did for me last week was good, but what have you done for me lately? (laughs) And we need these constant reminders. One of the reasons we gather together every week is to rehear, right? To rehearse is really to rehear. We want to rehear the gospel message. We want to rehear the story. We want to re-remember and participate actually in the goodness that the Lord has manifested to us in Christ. But there are some really wonderful stories um, in these books as well. Uh, One of them, if you remember uh, the spies that were sent over to scope out the land of of Canaan, 12 were sent originally, right? One for each tribe. And they saw that the land was good, that it was gushing with milk and honey. And they returned with a cluster of grapes that was so large that two people even had to carry it. (laughs) However, 10 of them said, you know what? We shouldn't go. The Nephilim are there. Uh, They are the sons of uh, Anak and the giants, you know, seven, eight, nine feet tall dwelled in the land and they were afraid. And the report had actually stirred up a a riot. Turn, if you will, to Numbers chapter 14 for a minute. In Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 1, this is after the report of the spies. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, uh, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh, would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Right? That's pretty significant rebellion. And it's kind of short-term memory in terms of everything they had seen in the 10 plagues and everything they had seen in terms of the Red Sea and all the promises that, that God had made. And here they are now wanting to overthrow the leadership that God had put in place in terms of Moses and Aaron saying, hey, it was better for us to go back. They can't quite make the connection that, hey, the one who delivered us from Egypt, the one who did all of those things is currently with us and he had promised us this land, which we can see, and he's going to go with us and he's going to give it to us. This is one of the difficulties of pilgrim people, isn't it? To recall and reflect on the promises of God and what he said, and what he's done, and recognize that that's the same God who is for us in the present and will be with us in the future as well. And they were really struggling to make this connection, and they rebel against the Lord. But it's really wonderful that we read that Caleb, in uh, Numbers 13.30, he says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. (laughs) So here was one. Right, the voice of one, and Joshua was with him, said, no, 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 we got this. Ten spies say, it's a disaster, we're going to get wiped out, we shouldn't go. And two say, you know, we should go. We should obey the Lord in this, he's going to give it to us. We, we, can, we can overtake them, they're trusting the Lord. But this rebellion was really the third strike for the people of Israel of that generation 
that had seen all of the things that the Lord had done and still didn't believe and still didn't really act on it. And so that's when God acts in judgment. And he said, this generation is not going to enter into the promised land. And so for the next 40 years, they're wandering around because of their hardness of heart, because of their failure to believe, which was manifested in disobedience. And the Lord had given them warning after warning. He'd given them mercy after mercy. He'd given them grace after grace. And eventually he said, enough is enough. And that's one of the things that we want to recognize when the scripture is telling us who is Yahweh. He's a God who takes sin very seriously. He's a God who takes rebellion very seriously. He's a God who takes his own word very seriously. And he's a God who takes judge, uh, mercy seriously as well in terms of providing it for us. But this is a God who plays for keeps. And he won't countenance fools. He won't countenance evil forever. Uh, it's got a limit. He's the one who sets the limits, even as Pastor was saying in the sermon today. The demons could go so far, but no further. Only as far as the Lord would allow. And so this is it for that generation. No more. But it's not the end of the promise. He's going to preserve a remnant. The younger generation is going to be able to go and enter into the land. And the Lord is going to build himself a people and a place. Even if this people and this place failed, there's going to be another one. (laughs) And we get that over and over as we read scripture. We're anticipating, where is this one who is going to conquer? Where is this one who is going to to do it? Where is this land that we're going to to live in? And so that pattern really... um, really manifests itself. And then 40 years later, the Lord gives them victory over Sihon and Og, and Joshua was appointed the successor to follow Moses. And then look at Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. So God had already dominated the Egyptians God had been with Israel now with them for 40 years, preserving them even in the wilderness. I don't think... I think I wrote down the wrong verse. Sorry. It's, I wanted to say where the power of Yahweh was known... In Joshua somewhere, it says, (laughs) As soon as the king of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the king of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 5-1, thank you. Joshua 5-1. As soon as the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard what the Lord had done when he dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. This is great. This is a great story of the divine warrior taking them across the Jordan, defeating their enemies, defeating Sion, defeating Og. And then the story of that goes out, right? Who is this Yahweh? Who is this one who fights for his people? Who is this one who preserves his people? Who's the one who led them out of Egypt, right? The name of the Lord uh, is getting, getting known. And either people are going to fear it 
Uh, as we again, we heard, uh, you know, it's so wonderful in God's providence that the sermon that we heard this morning, people are either going to fear it or they're going to believe. And that's what we heard throughout. Throughout the scripture, there are two groups of people. Those who call upon the name of the Lord and those who do what is right in their own eyes. Those who believe and trust the Lord and those who follow their own path. And massive victory for the Lord over those kings and then his reputation is, is known. And then we move from the wandering to the conquest. Now, they're actually in the land. And imagine the first thing that you see is Jericho. And God says, all right, here's this great walled city. And how I want you to conquer it is to march around it for six days, blasting your trumpets, right? You think, maybe this isn't the best plan, right? Let's, let's go in and let's attack it right now. Let's do a surprise attack or a sneak attack, But the Lord doesn't even say that. He says, wait, before we even do that, there's something else that we need to do because holiness is important. And this generation hadn't yet been circumcised. And we may think, well, what's the big deal? They were wandering around. It's tough. But the Lord takes his covenant signs and his covenant seals very seriously. He takes the sacraments very seriously. So they needed to be circumcised. And they participate in the Passover now in the promised land. They have been anticipating this, and now they're actually circumcised. The sign and seal of the covenant of grace that was given to Abram, uh, they participate in, and they participate in the Passover. And the Lord is telling them, you know, that this great battle plan for Jericho is that you're going to march around it (laughs) for six days, blowing your trumpets, and then on the last day, seventh day, you'll march around it seven times. You're basically signaling to your enemy that you're there. And they've got to wonder, you know, what's going on after four days? Like, hmm, who's in charge of this army, right? But it's a victory. The Lord causes the, wall, causes the walls of Jericho to tumble, and they go in, and they take possession of the land, just as God had said. He's the divine warrior. He's the one who did it. It wasn't Israel's military or might or prowess or planning or anything. It was the Lord who fought for them. And he had made them holy, right? He had, he had given them the, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. They had participated in the Passover. And now they're in the promised land as he had said and as he had promised them. That's a really wonderful story. It reminds us, too, of the seriousness of the sacraments of the meaningfulness of the sacraments, of the effectual nature of the sacraments, and that sacraments both are signs and seals of judgment and salvation, right? Circumcision itself is a cutting. It's a cutting off if you aren't uh, united to the Lord. It's a bloody seal, right? This blood is spilled if you aren't part of uh, uh, the covenant as well. And so... It's showing that the Lord takes those things really seriously. When he had said, given them all these laws, all these rituals, everything, he wanted them to do them in exacting detail. And over and over, they're going to have problems for not doing them in exacting detail, just like we don't. And again, that's going to point forward to finally, there's going to be one who comes on the stage of human history who is going to do them well. But in terms of this divine warrior theme, look again at Joshua chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories in, in the book. 
In Joshua 5, chapter 13, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, (laughs) but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is great. It's encompassing everything that we're saying here. A people and a place. It's revealing who Yahweh is. It's showing that he's a divine warrior. He's coming to fight for his people. And Joshua, in essence, right, thinks he's the, he's the ruler of this, or the, the uh, commander of this army. And he sees someone and he says, hey, are you basically for us or against us? And the Lord doesn't say, yes, uh, he, he doesn't say I'm for you or against you. He says, no. <laughs> he just says, um, he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And then Joshua falls basically and worships him, right? And some people think this is an angel, but nowhere in scripture do angels ever receive worship from humans. This is the Lord. This is a pre-incarnate view of Christ, the commander of the Lord's army, the great promise. He's the one who's here. And the question isn't, am I on your side or on your team, but are you with me? Are you believing and calling upon the name of the Lord, right? We don't use God as a mascot for our cause. We want to be caring about the things that are important to the Lord. His word, his will, his people, his gospel, his world. We don't want to try to use him and force him, hey, are you on our side? We're on his side. And he's shown himself as powerful. Again, the who is Yahweh from the beginning. It wanted to start by saying, hey, he's the God of creation, He's the God of redemption. He's the God over all the other gods in Egypt. He's the God of the sea. He's the God of all of these things. He's he's here now. (laughs) And he's going to fight for you. And that's pointing forward ultimately again to, as Pastor said in his sermon, there Jesus was, right? They had heard about him before. But now the demons that were roaming the earth see him the Son of God, the one that they saw in pre-incarnate form is now standing there in the Gospels. Incarnate. God in flesh, the Lord, the commander of the army, the Holy One of Israel, the seed, the promised one. And all of these stories help us understand that story. The one who fought at Jericho, the one who fought at the Red Sea, the one who fought in Egypt, that one. That's our God. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. That's the one who fights for us. He's the commander. And then God tells him to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. What's that an echo of? What's that? Yeah, Moses. Yeah, very good. The burning bush. And so, you know, here it's just again signaling that he's the next leader. He's the one who the Lord had appointed. And he stood in the presence of the Lord as well. And then there's this really difficult concept in Scripture called harem warfare, which when you read through Scripture is really difficult because from our perspective, right, the Lord tells the nation of Israel to go in and just wipe out everyone in the promised land. 
right? Men, women, children, livestock, just demolish it. And harem really means like to devote something to destruction for the purpose of God, though. Think of like a whole burnt offering. When the Israelites burned a whole burnt offering, like all of it was to be dedicated to or consecrated to the Lord for his purpose and for his glory. And so when we think of harem warfare, we recognize it's a real difficult concept for us. But we want to recognize a few things about it. First, that it was only ever to be done within the boundaries of the promised land. It wasn't, you can go beyond there and do whatever you want. It was only when and where and how the Lord commanded. It was only for a very specific period of time. It wasn't for ever. And many times people think of it as ethnic cleansing. It's not ethnic cleansing. The issue was holiness. The people in the land were unholy and the land was unholy. And the Lord said he's going to have a holy people and he's going to have a holy place. So it's not because they weren't Jews that was the problem. It was that they weren't holy. And the Lord's showing himself as the just judge on everything that is unholy, whether it is people or whether it is a place. And another way that, how does another way that we know this isn't ethnic cleansing? That this isn't God just telling the Jews, hey, go wipe out everybody who's not a Jew. How else do we know that from Scripture? Rahab, Rahab yes. How else? Right, God brought in other people, right? How else? Yeah, God specifically tells them, look, it's not because you're holy or more number, numerous or wonderful because you're not all that great, <laughs> right? Your sinner's dead in your trespasses and sins like Adam. But also the Israelites get kicked out of the land, don't they? because of their disbelief, because of their unholiness, because they went horroring after other gods as well. The issue is sin and sinfulness and unholiness, not your ethnicity or the color of your skin. It's really showing who God is in his holiness. And that's why all of those passages, even leading up to Joshua and Judges, go through all the Levitical laws, through all the um, ceremonial laws, everything showing cleanliness and holiness that has to happen in order to be in the presence of God and have a holy place. And this was really hard for the people to do. Uh, they struggled with it from the very beginning. It had a purifying function. And it also was meant to point us forward to the reality of what all sin deserves and the salvation that's available through the mercy of God. But throughout Scripture, God has already showed himself as someone who takes sin very seriously, right? He expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. There was the flood. There was Sodom and Gomorrah. There was the ten plagues. Uh, there was the, the wilderness generation. I mean, God is showing himself to be very serious about sin, but also all the time providing a savior for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And we've already seen, as Dan and others said, there are already people outside of the nation of Israel. If they called on the God of Israel, they too were saved. And so it gets, in our day, again, it gets easy for us to think about this as a military conflict amongst equal nations. And what's really happening here 
is something beyond that, something meta. <laughs> um, in terms of the Lord trying to clear a land for himself that's both holy and his people are holy. And that's foreshadowing the time when Christ is going to come and he's going to take no prisoners. Everyone and everything that doesn't believe in or belong to the Lord will be destroyed and everything that does will rule and reign with him forever. It's pointing forward to the second coming. And again, it was just temporary. But it's still tough, isn't it? It's tough for us to, to swallow. We should not think of this isn't in any easy way. As a matter of fact, they perpetually fail to do this. That's a really hard thing to do. And one of the reasons why there's so many problems in the rest of the book of Joshua and Judges is because they don't do this. And then they end up intermarrying. They end up taking on the practices of the people. They end up taking on their gods. So God didn't say it without reason. Like, I'm just a meanie and I want to wipe out these people. It's because they're unholy. It's because they're impure. It's because they worship false gods and they're going to lead you that direction. I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to warn you. I'm trying to save you. Don't do these things. Don't go with those people. Bad company corrupts good morals, Scripture will say. And so they end up doing that. They end up intermarrying. They end up getting into all kinds of pagan practices. I mean, if you, those of you who read uh, Judges and Joshua and Judges know that over and over and over again. We see the people of God going after false gods and false idols and things that God specifically said to stay away from. Zach Keel on page 63 of his book says this, Yahweh declares to Joshua, who is nearing retirement, there remains yet very much land to possess. And before Joshua is gathered to his kin, he charges the elders of the people to finish the conquest that he began. They must fight so that Yahweh will push back and drive away the remaining nations. With all diligence, Israel must not mix with these nations, either by intermarriage or by religion. In a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, Israel swears fealty to God as their God and to do all of his commandments. And these exhortations paint a really clear picture of Israel's responsibilities and dangers to void. They are to harem all the people. They shall not let them live and be their neighbors, and they shall not mingle with them, marrying or involved in their worship. And as the story unfolds, we find out that's exactly what they do. And God had warned them specifically, and they had taken an oath, right? All this we will do. We will do exactly what you say. And as we looked at the difference between the covenant of grace uh, made with uh, Adam and Eve after they sinned and the covenant at Sinai, which we'll look at a little bit more next week. But that was a, a, a promise that they said, all these things we will do. And when we think of the covenant of grace, God is saying, all this I will do. I will bless you. I will keep you. I will preserve you. I will give you the land. I will make you clean. I will give you a new heart. I will forgive you. I will make you righteous. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's a sit-down covenant. You sit down and receive the blessings. And they had stood up and said, all this we will do, and they failed. We're not going to throw rocks and stones at them because that's us, Right? Israel is a picture of all of us in our sin. 
So this is one of the darkest, you know, chapters and one of the darkest books. And so then the book of Judges unfolds and it really has a cycle, this recurring cycle where Israel does evil by going after other gods. Yahweh gives their enemies into their hands. They do evil and cry out to the Lord for mercy. God raises up a judge who will deliver them and then the land has rest over and over and over. <laughs> judges, that really is recounting 12 judges. And they, by the way, they don't all go chronologically. Some of them are contemporaneous in different parts uh, of Israel and different parts of the promised land. So don't read it like this is all happening at the exact same time, uh, or chronologically. Some of them are happening at the same time. But you see this cycle over and over. They, they, they did evil. They went after other gods. God had given them victory. They cry out and ask the Lord for mercy. And then God raises up a judge. And then that judge proves to be unfaithful in one way or another. But God still gives them rest. And it's not like an endless cycle either, where it just keeps going around like this. It makes it look like it's a downward spiral where it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Until you get to the end of the book. That's not really a spiral, is it? <laughs> like that. And it gets to a point where it's just so bad. And you can read over and over, there's a refrain throughout the book of Judges that said, X, Y, and Z, whoever the person is, did not drive out the inhabitants, but put them to forced labor. Or they did not drive out the inhabitants, but lived among them. Look at Judges 127. So look at, yeah, 127. So Manasseh did not drive out all the inhabitants uh, or the inhabitants of blah, 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 blah. Go, goes on to verse 28, but did not drive them out completely. And then Ephraim, 28, 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Girza. So the Canaanites lived in Girza. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, blah, blah, blah. It just goes through. You see over and over, they just didn't do what the Lord had said. They didn't obey for whatever reason. A lot of it's because of a lack of faith, right? Our lack of obedience comes from a lack of faith. And so there's this downward spiral. And it says, whenever the judges died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. That's what it tells us. So it just gets worse. One after the other. And there's some really fascinating stories in there, right? Eglon and Ehud, Gideon, Samson. There's some fantastic stories in there. But the overall warp and woof of Judges is saying, look, we haven't found this one yet. We haven't found the one who's faithful. We haven't found the one who's going to love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. We haven't found the one who really is a holy person and able to cleanse the land. We're still looking for him. We're still waiting for this person. There's an expectation. They fail on every point. 
They don't destroy their enemies, but they live among them and they marry them. They don't worship the Lord and him alone. They pursue other gods and bring in idolatrous worship. They fail to live up to the law that they had sworn to obey. And there's a failure of leadership. And each judge gets measured by these criterion. It was their devotion to Yahweh, how they treated women, their military conduct, and the religious reforms they enact to help people in their society. And so it just gets worse. But I don't want to leave you on that. <laughs> I want to leave you with hope. Because there's still the God of promise who made some promises, who's going to send a seed, and he's going to conquer sin, he's going to conquer Satan, he's going to conquer death, he's going to be holy, he's going to bring about the destruction of the Lord's enemies and the salvation of God's people. And so look at the very last verse of the book of uh, Joshua, or, or Judges. Judges 21, 25. I think I wrote Joshua in your notes. It's Judges. So this is a pretty ringing indictment. (laughs) After all this cycle, the last verse says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we said at the very beginning, what's the difference? Those who call upon the name of the Lord and those who do what is right in their own eyes. And everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and they have no king. And what's really going to happen next is that we've been looking for national obedience. And now, in the request for a king, it's going to just come down to one person. Is the king going to obey? Is Saul? Is David? Is Solomon? Is whoever? So it goes from seeking this whole nation to do all the things that they said they will do to find a king who will say, all this I will do and do it well. And of course, we know that all of the kings, and there's some good ones and some bad ones, um, weren't perfect either. It's pointing forward to one who is. Dr. Josh Van E says this. He says, the question of kingship is raised in the book of Judges. They need someone to do what they failed to do as a nation. We sometimes miss the setup of judges for the kingship. Do not hopscotch over judges. Judges does not just look for God as king, but for a mediator, someone to go between God and man, showing the inadequacies of the Mosaic economy, their inability to worship and promote justice in the land, The duty now becomes focused on an individual, and this is the key. The formula in Judges to evaluate the people, the people did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, in Kings becomes the king did or did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So it goes from, hey, are we as a nation going to obey to, is this king going to obey or not and do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? And all of that, as we'll see as we go through, hopefully shows some really good pointers to Christ and some uh, negative pointers uh, to Christ, but all in the anticipation of the one who would be the king, who would constantly do what is right uh, in the eyes of the Lord, would constantly obey, that he would be holy 
Not only would you show forth holiness, but he would be able to make his people holy. And he would be the one to do the conquest, right? As we're reading through and going through the gospel of Mark, he has power over creation. He has power over demons. He has power over sickness. He has power over death. He has power over everything. And there he is in the flesh. The one who Joshua had seen and talked to is now here. And he has now come. And we have more reasons than they do even to recognize and to have confidence in who Yahweh is for us, with us, and in us than they do because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And beloved, we're constantly warned in Scripture to not be like this generation who saw these things and didn't believe or hardened their heart or grumbled and complained against the Lord because it gets so easy. And so Scripture reminds us over and over, don't be like that. Remember and believe, taste, drink. Remember and believe the precious body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ were given for you. And this grace and mercy that we have that fuels us as we go on and show forth God's mercy as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for not pulling any punches with us in Scripture and showing us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We thank you for showing us the reality and the horror of what our sins actually deserve. And we thank you for not leaving us with that, uh, but sending your own son to be our divine warrior, our conquering king, our hero, who endured the condemnation and the harem warfare that should have been meted out on us, he took upon himself on the cross, that he was condemned, that he bore your wrath, that he died, and the wages of sin is death, and that he died for us. And we thank you that the story doesn't end there, but three days later he rose from the grave, showing himself as the one who is the seed promised, the one who holds life in his hand, the one in whom we have life, we have forgiveness, we have righteousness, we have adoption, we have hope. We ourselves are now a holy people as we are indwelt by your Holy Spirit. And may that Holy Spirit continue to sanctify us and conform us evermore to the image of our beautiful, glorified, and risen Savior, Jesus. It's in his name, washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness, and indwelt by your spirit that we pray. Amen.